so glad to be here. My name is Tyson Viveco. I'm going to be your guest preacher for today. Um, Neil, I think he is having knee replacement surgery, so I have no envy for him right now. I'm, my father had two replacement surgeries. Just pray for him. That's all I have to say. It's a, it's a rough surgery. But uh, I'm so glad to be here. Uh, I was the former associate pastor at Ojai Presbyterian Church and uh, uh, did youth ministry there. Um, and now I'm currently working with LifeWater, which is a Christian nonprofit that does clean water and sanitation hygiene projects and shares the gospel in some of the world's most uh, vulnerable and remote communities. So uh, just it's a great organization. Check it out sometime. Uh, love it. But way more interesting, I know Cynthia, actually. Cynthia was in uh, my wife and I's wedding, was in our wedding. She was the maid of honor. So we know Cynthia very well. We hear about Stonebridge all the time and what God's doing here. So it's really, really fun to actually be able to worship with you all, to preach, and just kind of see the, the amazing things that are happening here. So just so glad to be with you here today. Um, but before I get going, let's, uh, let's pray, yeah? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this chance to worship, for this chance to dive into your word and to be transformed by the power of your spirit. Lord, we ask that if these words that I speak are from you indeed, that we let them cling to our hearts and be transformed by them. But if they're not, Lord, let them quickly be forgotten, that we might be people of you in all things we do. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'm a big fan of this guy. You'll see a slide on him, a picture of a slide on him. This guy is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Does anyone know this person? I know there's probably a few people in here who do. He's a German theologian and a pastor. And he was a pastor right in 1930s uh, Germany. So what was happening in 1930s Germany? The Nazis. Not exactly a great time to be a pastor, right? In fact, he was a pastor for uh, what was known as the Confessing Church. And the Confessing Church was a group of pastors and theologians and, and congregants who said basically no to what Hitler was doing to the church. Hitler at one point, uh, kind of after, you know, uh, solidifying some of his support among the Protestant church, said, you know, I actually need to be the head of the church. I need to be the head of the church. And actually the Nazi party said, okay, this is great, but we're actually going to throw out the Old Testament because of its Jewish origins. Now, as you can imagine, there were a few people who were upset by that, hopefully, right? There were a few people who were upset by that. And Bonhoeffer was one of them. He was one of the leaders of this movement. But the problem was the Nazi party essentially said, hey, anyone in this, this movement can't speak publicly. They can't preach. They can't teach. They can't be professors. And they put them on a watch list. So kind of long story short, eventually Bonhoeffer leads an underground seminary in Germany, training up future leaders for this confessing church, this kind of orthodox Christianity in Nazi Germany. And it was kind of secretive, even though he was being watched. Uh, you know, they, they, they tried to meet and, and ultimately form new people to be leaders of the church. But this was uh, not like a typical seminary like we think of where you go, you learn some things and, and uh, uh, kind of learn theology and that sort of stuff. They did that too, but it was highly communal, highly based in prayer and scripture and really taking those confessions, those old confessions of the church, really seriously. And this is like, I kind of imagine how this would be seen because Bonhoeffer came from an aristocratic scholarly family, you know, a lot of professors in his family. It was very, it was kind of like, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. It might be like someone from back east joining, you know, like going to San Francisco in the 1960s. You know what I mean? You're like, 
what are you doing all there with those hippies? Like, that's probably what people were thinking for Bonhoeffer. In fact, his brother came to get him. His brother came to get him. He said, look, Bonhoeffer, you're a nice guy, but you got to stop this. You're an embarrassment to the family. Like, just quit this thing that you're doing right now, and why don't you just, you know, join the rest of us. Get your old professorship, marry a nice girl, you know. And all of a sudden, Bonhoeffer took his, his brother and went across a lake. Uh, and Finkenwald, the seminary where he was teaching, went across the lake and then went up to this kind of small hill. And on the hill, on one side, across the lake, you th- could see Finkenwald, where the seminary was. And just down the hill was a Nazi youth camp. And he looked at his brother. And he said, this has to be stronger than this. This seminary, this group of people, this thing that we're teaching about Jesus and what it means to follow him has to be stronger than what's happening in this Nazi youth camp where hate is the the reigning rule of the day. Now, I actually just heard this story a couple weeks ago. I don't know if it's true. It may be totally apocryphal. I don't know. But I love the sentiment behind it. I love it. Because basically what he's asking is this. Does our faith actually make us different than the culture around us? Does our faith actually make us any different? And I think that question is a question, excuse me, that's a question we need to ask ourselves. Does our faith actually make a difference? Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we look at our lives and, and kind of the world around us and we say, how am I truly any different than the people around me? Because the truth is, we are being formed all the time. Sometimes it's intentional, but a lot of time, it, a lot of time it's pretty unintentional, isn't it? I mean, think about it. You turn on the TV, and what do you see? You see a movie, and then all of a sudden, an advertisement comes up, and you see that commercial, and it's telling you, you need to buy this to look good. You need to buy this to have that good life. That's forming you. Or maybe you go on your phone and you scroll through Facebook or your, whatever your social media of choice is and you kind of see it and you like, you see your friend. Have you ever noticed how on social media everyone's life looks perfect? You know, like they're, they're fantastic. Like you go online and it's like, how come my friend, like some friend is eating a gelato on some Italian beach, right? And you're like, I need to do that. That's what I need to do. That's forming you. That's forming who you are. But it's not just culture and society and social media. It's even our relationships that form us. Hopefully all of you come from wonderful, loving, caring families. But the truth is, a lot of us have relationships that are toxic. Maybe you just have something that your mom or your dad or your uncle or your brother or your sister said that is toxic and has just stuck with you after years and years. Whatever that lie is, that formed you. Or maybe it's a friend who you know really well, but let's be honest, they don't bring out the best in you. That forms you. Or even just our habits. Our habits. What's the first thing you do when you wake up? You know, I uh, read this study that said 61%, 61% of people, the first thing they do when they wake up is check their phone. 
61%, over half of America. Now think about that. 61%. The first thing they do is they pull out their phone, they wake up bleary-eyed, and they say, what is the thing that needs my attention right now? What notification do I need to see? What's happened in my friend's life that I need to know? What's the news that's happening right now? And if you actually extend that out to 30 minutes, 88%. 88%. Now, I'm not saying, like, woe is culture, everything's bad, you know? I'm just saying that we don't need to do anything to be formed. You simply wake up and you're formed. You turn on the TV, you're formed. You scroll through social media, you're formed. You have relationships with people, you're formed. You create habits of your day like getting in the car and turning on the radio, you're formed. I think Bonhoeffer's question, or I guess statement, is still just as applicable because my question for you is this, this church, this community, your small groups, your youth groups, is this more powerful than that? What's out there? The things that we're just uh, swimming in in our culture and our society. Because for most of us, formation happens unintentionally. But I think Jesus has a different vision for our life. A vision where formation happens deeply and intentionally around him. So to talk about this, I want to go through a passage in Matthew chapter 7. Let's, uh, let's read it. This is Matthew, excuse me, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. It says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, the words Jesus is speaking, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on, on sand. And when the rains came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, it fell with a great crash. All right, pretty simple, right? Just put Jesus' words into practice. You got that, right? We can all go home. That's the sermon. Now here's the issue. Let's put some context around this passage. This is the very last thing Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and it's the longest uninterrupted teaching Jesus has in the New Testament. So it's the longest time Jesus has any like dedicated time to saying, this is what the kingdom of God is all about. If you kind of want to know what like Christianity's ethical and moral code is, just spend, you know, 20 minutes, read Matthew 5 through 7. And, and Jesus kind of like reinterprets the Old Testament law, and he sets an incredibly high bar. An incredibly high bar. So if we're to put that into practice, that's pretty difficult. Let me just give you a, a few examples from here, okay? Just, just, this is just from chapter 5. You heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Hopefully in this room we're good on that, you know? Okay. But I tell you. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Wolf. Yikes. I don't know about you. I have two small children. One's three and one's one. 
Now, I love my children. I really do. But when Zoe, my oldest, like, I'm like, Zoe, don't knock that, that cup over. And she looks at me, and she's like, you know? I'm like, I get angry. I don't know about you. I can't help myself, right? So how do I deal with that passage? What about this one? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Great, I hope none of you guys are cheating on your spouse. But I tell you, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. Nice, easy teaching of Jesus, isn't it? That's like basically America's marketing strategy, right? I mean, you can't drive down the highway with, for like 20 minutes without seeing like a beer commercial with like a woman barely clothed. How about this one? You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How is enemy love going for you? That's rough. How about this one? This one just gets me every time. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, I've got that, but I'm sure you're working on it. You know? No. This is hard. What do we do with passages like this when he says, this is the words you're supposed to hear and put into practice? What do we do with that? Are we just supposed to say, oh, throw my hands up, we're saved by grace alone? Is that what Jesus is doing, just making such a high bar that we recognize our need for him? I mean, some people interpret it that way, but I don't. I don't. I think Jesus is calling us to an incredibly high bar, and I think Jesus meant every one of those words he just said. I think he did, and I think he's calling us to do the same thing, to be people of radical love, to be people who have compassion when all we receive is anger, to be people of purity and integrity in the midst of a world that is anything but, to be people of justice that seek goodness for the poor and the marginalized rather than oppressed, to be the kind of people who are transformed into the kind of people who can live in the kingdom of God both in this life and the next. That is nothing short of what Jesus is calling us to do. But the problem is, how do we do that? How do we do that, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I read those passages and I say, how do I possibly do that? Well, I think part of the reason we have such a hard time with that is because we read through a passage and we don't pick up on some really important words. I don't know about you, but maybe you read a passage and you like pick up, oh, okay, the house. I should be like the house, the strong foundation. Great. But how about this? Those who hear these words and put them into what? Practice. Think about that word for a second. Practice. That's an interesting word. Because practice isn't just do it. Just try really hard. It's actually a totally different sort of word. Practice. Think about what practice means. Practice literally means, by definition, a disciplined effort of exercising or performing a task over and over and over and over until you become proficient. Have you ever heard anyone learn an instrument like violin? Have you ever heard someone learn how to play violin? It's horrible. It is the worst sound that will ever enter your house. It's just awful. 
because they can't figure out. They have to know how to place their hands, but until they do, they sound really bad. Okay? If I were to pick up a violin, I don't know how to play a violin. If I were to pick it up and I'm like, guys, I'm going to try really hard on this and play it for you, would it sound good? No, it would sound awful. It would sound awful. But oftentimes, that's how we approach our faith. We try really hard, but we don't train. Well, let's put it this way. Let's say I'm not a runner. I'm not a runner. I once did like a, 13, a half marathon. It was like the worst experience of my life. It was awful. You know how everyone's like, oh, yeah, there's a runner's high. That's a lie. Don't listen to those people. It was horrible. I was like somewhere around mile 11, I was like, why did I sign up for this? Anyway, okay, not a runner. Let's say tomorrow, I'm like, guys, I'm going to try. I'm going to run a marathon. It's time. I'm going to try it. But I haven't put any training into it. How am I going to do? Horribly. At like mile two, I'm going to be like, this is really hard. At like mile four, my lungs might literally explode. And at mile six, I'm pretty sure just like cardiac arrest, you know? Like that's me. I have not trained for it. I'm not a runner. I'm not the kind of person for whom a marathon is possible. I mean, a marathon is hard regardless of whether or not you've trained for it. But if I don't train for it, there's certainly no way I'm going to finish it running. But... I could be the kind of person who runs a marathon, couldn't I? If I say, hey, I'm going to train and I get into running shape and, and little by little I, I have longer runs and I in, increase those over a period of time and little by little I become a better runner and my endurance picks up and all of a sudden, after six months of intensive training, probably for me more like 18 months, I become the kind of person for whom a marathon is possible. It's still really difficult but I can do it. My, my thought, I guess, is that very few of us approach the Sermon on the Mount and our faith that way. We try really hard. We try. We hear a sermon or we read a passage or we see a devotional. We say, oh, this is great. I love this. Oh, that really spoke to me. And we leave this room or whatever small group we're in and we say, this is so good, I'm going to put this into practice. And we try it for like a day and then like a week goes by and we're not really doing it. And like then three weeks go by, we don't even remember the passage or the thing we're doing. And then a month goes by and we say, how come despite I've been going to church all this time, I don't feel any change? And then a year goes by and you're the same person you started from when you ended. And then three years and 30 years and we say, where's that transformation? that Jesus talks about. I think if we just try, we're never going to get very far in our faith. We're going to be the same person we were yesterday as we are today. But Jesus doesn't call us to try. He calls us to follow. That's the very first thing he says to his disciples. This is actually a really interesting thing. He says, come follow me. Think about that for a second from a theological perspective. He doesn't say like, Okay, here's the list. Now, if you can do all these things, then you're good. He doesn't say, hey, guys, I'm going to save you anyway, so don't worry about it. He says, follow me. Learn from me. Follow my slow pattern of life that will show you grace and life in abundance. See what I'm doing with the people I minister to so that you can do the same thing. I'm going to send you out anyway. Might as well learn. Follow me. Pattern your life around who I am, the way I live, so that you too 
might become like me. That involves training, doesn't it? That involves training. Training to actually love your enemy. You know, when Jesus sends out the 72, you know, um, in Luke, he, he talks about, he, he gathers some of his disciples and some of the people following him. He sends out 72 people, and they're like, it was great. And, and then they come back and they're like, what should we do for the people who, don't, who didn't accept it? Should we rain fire down on them? And I mean, I can't just help but imagine, like, you didn't listen to the Sermon on the Mount, did you? Love your enemies. It took them a while to get there. But they, they, they slowly became the kind of people who did. But here's the real question. All right, we can talk about putting into practice and saying how important it is to actually train. But how do we actually do that, right? Let's get really practical for a second. How do we actually become the kind of people for when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we're the kind of people who say, yeah, actually, I, I may not be there, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. How do we become that kind of person? Well, the thing is, the church has a really deep well of traditions, a really deep well of tools that help us to get to the kind of people for when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we're saying, yeah, I'm starting to get that. I'm starting to do it. What are these tools? Well, here are the two least sexy words you're going to hear all morning. Spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. What is a spiritual discipline? This is a quick definition, all right? A spiritual definition is this. Any practice that helps us to become more and more like Jesus. A practice that helps us to become more and more like Jesus. So anything you do that makes you a more loving person like Jesus was, that actually could be considered a spiritual discipline. But here's the catch. I would say most of us have practices. I'm not sure most of us have disciplines. Because a disciplined effort is entirely different, isn't it? When I'm learning to you know, play that violin that sounds so bad, the only way I'm going to get better is if I get calluses on my fingers and slowly figure out my finger position and all these sorts of stuff. But it's going to take practice each and every day. A discipline is intentional, and it takes hard work, and it takes time. But they will make a difference. Now, here's the thing. You guys are already practicing spiritual disciplines. Just by being in this church, you are practicing a spiritual discipline. What's one thing we're doing right now? Worshiping, right? You come to this church. Congratulations, you are doing a spiritual discipline. Each week you come here, you're being formed. And instead of saying, oh, it's Sunday morning, what can I do? I guess brunch or church. Okay, ch church, right? By making that choice, you are disciplining yourself and your body and your mind and your spirit and your soul to love Jesus more and to be shaped like him. That's one discipline. <clears throat> Maybe here's another one. These are kind of the common ones. What about prayer? That's a discipline, right? You wake up, you pray, you spend some time talking to God, communing with him, hearing his, uh, the Spirit speak, right? Or things like Scripture study, opening your Bible, reading the story, seeing what the story is of God and having it slowly seep into your story so that when you read the Bible, you're like, yeah, I identify with that. Or, oh, no, I don't, but I want to. Right? That's a spiritual discipline. But here's the, the, the tricky thing, I think. For most of us in the Protestant tradition, that's where they end. That's where the spiritual disciplines sort of end. Maybe not for all of you, but for a lot of us. We kind of say, like, all right, like, what do you want to do to become a, a follower of Jesus? You know, I remember as a youth pastor, uh, there were people who would be 
<clears throat> really like engaged. And they'd be um, tracking, and, and they're like, all right, I want to grow my faith. I'm like, great, awesome. And, and they're like, what, what should I do? I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, well, are you reading scripture? Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Are you praying? Yeah. Uh, are you coming to church? Yeah. Are you with community? I guess you're in youth group. Yeah. And I didn't know what to say after that. If I'm honest with myself. I didn't know what to say. But the truth is, there are disciplines staring at us in Scripture that we ignore. Just staring at us. Things like this. What about Sabbath? It's in the Old Testament. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Something that Jesus and his disciples practiced. Spending 24 hours and just stopping. Resting. Delighting in God and worshiping him. Doesn't that just sound nice? I don't know if we do that. What about things like, like fasting? I really like food. But what about saying the only thing that sustains me is Jesus during this period? What about things like simplicity? We live in a consumer culture where everything is instant gratification. What if there was a practice that said, That stuff you buy doesn't own you. And we started decluttering our lives of the materialism that seems to own us. There's like a thousand others. There are. These are just a few that maybe we we sort of think about and ignore. You know, my wife and I, um, about a year ago, I heard a sermon um, that really, I mean, honestly, it kind of changed my life, like if I'm real. It changed my life. It was on Sabbath. It was actually a seven-part series on Sabbath. And I remember thinking, how come I've never heard a sermon on Sabbath? Like, literally, in my entire, entire time as a pastor, we never had a sermon on Sabbath that I, that I heard. Maybe someone would reference it, but I never heard a, a, a sermon on it, much less a seven-part series, right? And I remember thinking, uh, this, this pastor, he, he mentioned He's like, how come when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we're like all for all of them until we get to Sabbath, and then we're like, well, 24 hours, that's Old Testament. He's like, how come we like brag about when we get to Sunday, like, oh, I've got so much after this. Like, are we really practicing Sabbath? And I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to try this. So my wife and I, we decided we're going to do Sabbath for 24 hours. We're going to turn off our phones. We're going to turn off the TV, no technology. We're going to do it. We have two small kids, but we're going to try you know, stop, resting, delight. Sounds great. We try it, and like an hour goes by, and we're like, what happens next? I don't know. I really, I'm used to having my, my, my phone. I'm a millennial. What do you want from me, you know? And, and all of a sudden, it was really hard. It was hard to, to, to just stop. Literally, it was hard to stop and not have all those other distractions around me. But I'll tell you what, we kept up with it, and now it's the best thing that's happened to my faith in years. The best thing. I look forward to Friday. We do it Friday night to Saturday night because my, my wife's a, uh, a pastor at Ojai Presbyterian Church. And we, uh, we stop for that, that period, Friday night to Saturday night, and it's like Christmas every Friday night. I'm not kidding. We have a big feast. We celebrate. We don't do the dishes. You know? We wake up slow. We literally, like, on Friday night, we go to bed at, like, 8.30. I mean, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And we sleep for 12 hours, you know? 
you know? Uh, who am I kidding? I've got two small kids. All right. <laughs> it's true. All right. And we just, it's, we stop. We watch our kids play. We see Jesus just in the midst of their joy. We delight. I go on a hike, a long hike, the kind of hike that I never get the chance to. Five hours, and I'm so sore the next day, but it's great. We stop, we rest, we delight, we worship. And that has changed my spirituality. Because the next six days, I can do it. I've had time with, with my Lord and Savior, and it's transformed me. The next six days, because I've had this, this time of replenishing with God, I'm a little bit more patient with people. I'm a little more, or excuse me, less rushed. That's one practice. And we're not perfect at it, you know. We don't always do 24 hours. We're not legalistic about it, but it's changed us. What is the practice that you need to do to change your spirituality, to become more and more like Jesus? What is it? Maybe you're an anxious person and you just feel this cultural moment with all the anxieties around it, politically, globally, economically, whatever, and you just feel that sense of anxiety. What would it be like to have silence and solitude where you just rest with God? That's a practice. What would it be like to maybe do Sabbath? And just to say, all the news that I read and consume, the other six days, I'm going to stop this day. Just so that I can worship God in all his goodness right now. My point is this. You can, I can, we can change into being the kind of people Jesus calls us to. I want to make a really important qualification here. This is not quick. This doesn't happen overnight. We kind of live in a world where it's like we're upset when it's two-day shipping on Amazon, not one. You know? This isn't instant gratification. This isn't going to happen just tomorrow or the next week or even the next three months, maybe not even the next year, but after three years of doing this. It's the long haul. But I believe it'll change you. You don't become Mother Teresa overnight. But you do make a thousand tiny, small decisions to follow Jesus. And all of a sudden, you become the kind of person when you read these passages and say, I'm getting there. Yeah. You become the kind of person who says, I feel like my foundation is strong. You become the kind of person who's truly transformed by Jesus. In closing, let me just say this. I 100% believe that to follow Jesus is the best thing you can ever do in your entire life. It is the most fulfilling, most awe-inspiring, most challenging thing you will ever do. But it's also the best. The best. And I'll say this. For years, I let the gospel of saved by grace alone, which I 100% believe in, be a cover-up for my lack of training. I let the idea that because I'm saved by grace, I don't really need to work on my spirituality, if I'm honest with myself. I made a really good show of it. I tried really hard, but I didn't train. I want to call you guys to train, because that's where the money is. 
That's where you're going to experience transformation in Jesus that you never thought was possible. And I'm not perfect. I'm on process just like the rest of you. But I know that because I've started doing some of them, the rest of the things in my life are actually changing. My marriage is better. My times with God are richer. I'm not perfect, but I'm getting better with my kids. I'm becoming more compassionate. And I think it's because I'm training, not trying. And last, I just want to read this passage from Dallas Willard. I love this guy. He's, he's so smart. He said this, Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Jesus doesn't just say, you know, like, hey, believe in me and everything's figured. He says, follow me. He also says believe. He also says follow. Brothers and sisters, I pray for each and every one of you that you start training, that you start putting into practice that slow, unhurried, grace-filled way of Jesus that will lead to true life, that will make you the kind of person of compassion and love that he calls us to, people of God's kingdom. That's what we're called to, nothing less then you will truly be that kind of person for when the storms of life come, whether it's Nazi Germany in 1930s or just a bad relationship right here and now, you won't be shaken.